Hey Vibers, it's Kai. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of the Vibe with Kai podcast. Today, I'm sitting with the one and only Rick Lewis, Philadelphia native and the creator, director, and producer of the new family-friendly musical, The Ongoing Plights of the Ferryman, running exclusively at the Plays and Players Theater in Philadelphia. Philly, city of brotherly love, my town, I love it. Before we get things going, be sure to follow me on your favorite social media platforms at the Vibe with Kai. Our Visit my official website at thevibewithkai.com where I'm always posting things that'll help you do good, feel good, be good, and live a good life full of good vibes. But enough about me. My guest today is Rick Lewis. Rick is a writer, composer, director from Medford Lakes, New Jersey, Jersey boy in the house, born and raised in Philly. The arts have always been a part of his life. He started by learning piano at the age of five and joining and touring with the Philadelphia Boys Choir at the age of 12. As an adult, he worked in the audio department at the Prince Musical Theater, then as a sound designer at the Walnut Street Theater for their main stage. His directing credits include Little Shop of Horrors, The Breakfast Club, David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross, Man of La Mancha, and many others. Rick was a director, was the director at Fusion Performing Arts Center in New Jersey, and dedicated much of his time and talent to making the arts accessible to everyone. He has drafted programs that use the performing arts to teach social and cognitive skills to those in the autism spectrum, and, uh, and another to provide an uh, under, underprivileged youth hands-on training in their technical theater. Rick has also written and produced and directed his own shows through Fusion Performing Arts Center and Braid Child Stage Work, such as the show that we're going to be talking about today, The Ongoing Plight of the Ferryman. Today, we are talking about Rick's life, his viewpoints, his family-friendly musical. Uh, and we're gonna, and that, that musical is great because it explores the question, what do you do when you don't want to do the only thing you have to do? But that's enough about me talking. My friend, Rick, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm, yeah. uh, there's a lot going on. We're excited about what's coming up. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a fun show. You know, it's funny because uh, you and I, we've never like really like crossed paths per se, but I, I've known of you and we've been Facebook friends for, for quite some time. Mm -hmm. uh, but we, but I don't believe, if I'm not mistaken, I don't believe we ever crossed paths. Am I we correct? We haven't, but about 900 yeah. mutual friends that we know have. <laughs> right. Yes, we have. We have about. We have the. We run in the same circle. We just haven't been in the same place at the same time. I believe. Come see the show. Yes. We'll oh, I'll, oh, I'll be there. Oh, I'll be there. Absolutely. We'll fix that. <laughs> so one of the things that I, I want to kind of talk about here before we get into like the specific details of, about the show itself, one of the most important things that I believe that theater in general has been going, uh, has, has been talking about recently, especially in the Philadelphia area, is diversity and inclusion. Uh, which yeah. is quite a big deal. Um, diversity and inclusion in theater, especially in Philadelphia theater, has been a hot topic as of late, rightfully so. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about your experience navigating this on uh, this, this your own personal experience navigating this ongoing issue? Um, sure. Uh, uh, so I'm I'm old. I'm older than I look. Um, <laughs> Twenty one, right? Come on, Twenty one. Uh, Right, right, right. Yeah, I'm I'm past fifty. But uh, back in the day, when we used to book um, design jobs on the phone, um, there were a number of times where I would line up like a sound design gig or or a technical director gig, um, and then I would show up at the place, and they would see this and go, 
Oh, Rick Lewis. Because what they heard on the phone was very different than what I see. And so there was an expectation that if someone was a designer, if someone had credits, if someone um, had been working for a while, that they fit in a very specific dynamic, particularly designers. The pool was very small. So there were lots of there were lots of black performers. There were lots of black musicians. There were a few black directors. But when it came to the artistic team in a lot of Philadelphia theater, that didn't really exist. So very early on, I came to realize that I was navigating in spaces where not a lot of other people of color were. Um, as things moved along, as my career moved along, that kept sort of being the thing. Um, eventually... Uh, I wound up doing uh, mainstay and sound design at the Wall Street Theater for three seasons. I'm still the only black main stage designer in the history of the Wall Street Theater. That blows is, my mind. Right. In a, in a city like Philadelphia. That, that, for those of you that don't know, that, that may not be familiar with the, with the Philadelphia area, the Walnut Street, Street Theater, that's no small theater. You know, that's a pretty legit regional um, establishment that is in this area. And the fact that you, to this day, are are still the the only one that that do you feel like a, a I guess a burden to to hold that mantle let alone bring other people on do you ever feel any kind of pressure from that um sort of uh not 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 at the walnut particularly because any further navigation in that space isn't really up to me so what i came to realize is that i do have the ability to sort of open up other spaces and other opportunities, which is kind of how this show came into being in Philly. Um, the, the responsibility to go, okay, well, if you say that diversity, equity, and inclusion can't happen, needs to happen slowly, needs to be an incremental change, I want to be the guy who goes, no, 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 no. This is how you do it. And this is how you staff it. And this is, I, I have a problem. Um, there's a lot of theaters that have what I call um, anonymous diversity, mm. where there'll be a picture of the staff and crew of the show, and they'll have, you know, the pepper spots. But then you find out that, you know, three of those people are the ensemble, and two of those people are the janitorial staff, and one of those people are the people that, like, the, the marketing intern kind of thing. So one of the things that I wanted to to see happen with all of the talk about inclusion and all of the changes that we had that we have the opportunity to make as we come out of COVID, I wanted to make sure that designers were from marginalized um groups and that our department heads and that like our our audio one, our, our audio engineer is a black woman. I've never done a theater show in Philly uh, where the A1 was a black woman. I don't think I've ever done any theater uh, in, in South Jersey or Philly where that's the case as well. I, I, I feel you there. So, so I, I wanted to, to make a point of um, finding those who don't normally get to do the things that are that are that don't normally get to lead and give them the opportunity to lead in a situation where it's not just a fringe show it's not just something that's being performed in a church basement like we wanted to get 
um, a known and reputable Philly venue and to bring in professionals and to pay people and to do a show and to put it together um, with a cast and crew that reflects what I think the Philadelphia theater community should look like. I'm glad you said that because that was actually going to be one of my next questions. You you have a, an, an incredibly diverse cast and crew working on this show. Uh, and I kind of get, I, I know what you were kind of alluding to here, but can you go into a little bit more detail about how and why that was so important for you to, to have the cast and crew reflect the area that the show is taking place in? It's, it's kind of, there's two parts. Um, on one hand, uh, with all of, when, when we start, when we first went into lockdown and the conversations first started happening, because the, the real conversations started happening about dealing with bad players in the Philadelphia community, people mm. who abused their power, people who took advantage of other people. So that's kind of where it started. And then people started to say, well, what about the racism in Philadelphia theater? What about the exclusionary practices that happened? And at the beginning of the lockdown, there was lots of talk of, well, these are our statements and this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do things. But then as we started to come out of lockdown, a lot of places would do the same. Well, these were the folks that were in line before. Um, so we want to give them the opportunity to come back first. And so a lot of things like access to space and the ability to put things together and all of that nice, wonderful talk that was going on wasn't really taking place. So I wanted to, to fight against that. And I wanted to do a show that said, like I said before, no, this is how you do it. You can do it. It can be done. The talent is there. The people are there. Um, don't tell me you can't find a diverse cast. Yes, you can. So that was something that I decided that I wanted to go out and do. Um, but then the other part of that is the way the show was written originally, I wrote it in 2015, and the way it was written originally, it was just very open-ended. Um, there are four characters that are sort of gender-specific, but other than that, because um, it's a four, it's a, I'm sorry, including ensemble, uh, we have an 18-character show. Mm -hmm. We have 18 people in our cast. Um, so 14 of those 18 are completely open as far as gender, um, sex, expression, race, the whole bit. Um, and so I felt because this is a show that has that opportunity, um, I felt responsible to, to sort of live up to that and to pull in as many people as I could that way. Right. Now, do you feel that with all of the talks that have been going on, like over the past year, I, I know you were talking about this before, all the you know talk that um, theaters have been doing over the past year to better inclusion and to better diversity, you know, in, in this area. Do you feel that theaters in general right now in the Philadelphia area are are taking the right steps? Do you think that from the actions that they've taken so far that they're heading in the right direction? See, you shouldn't ask me questions like that because I don't. I'm I'm not that sort of a diplomat. Mm -hmm. Um, I I I haven't seen it. I think that's fair to say, and that's I what that's, I'm, I think that's incredibly fair to say. Yes, that's what I'm waiting for. Like it, it full disclosure. Um, I'm next spring. I'm going to be sound designing for another show, um, and I'm not going to get into who it is and where it is. 
Um, but for that particular show, the fact that I am a black designer has no bearing on what I'm bringing to the particular show, just because the show, the way it's written, doesn't call for it. I know that there's another place um, in Jersey that hired a black director, but they're doing Elf. Um, so the fact that he's a black director doesn't allow the blackness to be brought to the particular program. Don't get me wrong. We're both going to cash the check. But situations there, I feel that there need to be situations where the experience, the upbringing, the cultural quiver that we bring needs to be able to, to, to be, and that's not every show. And it's interesting because I don't like the next show that I'm working on um, after this is a show that I wrote called Garaville, um, which and that show is almost entirely black. Um, and so I don't think that every show that needs to express minorities needs to be a minority show per se, because that's one of the other things that happens is, you know, Oh, well, we, we want to be diverse. We want to be representative. So let's do Raisin in the Sun. And it's like, or let's, or let's do Ragtime. I can't tell you how often I've heard that very thing, Rick, right. when uh, they say, okay, we need, to Im we need to improve our diversity. So let's do Once on this Island. Right. Let's do Ragtime. Let's do right. this. And I, and I try to explain to theater sometimes that because I've, I've been very fortunate enough to sit on a lot of boards and a lot of, you know, panels, you know, discussing this very topic. And one of the things that I said to every single theater that I've talked to, I said to them, it's not just about that. And if you think it's just about that and, and OK, we need black people. So let's do a black show. It's not just about that. I don't want you to just call us when you need a Richie in a chorus line. Right. I want you to call us when you want a when you want a curly in Oklahoma. When you want like, why does it have to be limited to just black shows? Why why can't you the same diversity efforts that you're doing to find the appropriate cast for In the Heights? Why don't you do the same thing when you want to just diversify your production of Oklahoma or Hello Dolly or you know insert show here that's that's traditionally white? I feel like that's the key one of the key components that a lot of theaters are missing in in, in this regard. And, and to your point, it's not just about casting. Even let's hit some let's get some people of color uh, on the boards. Let's get some people of color on the mm -hmm. production teams. Let's get some people of color making decisions for the theater. I, I feel as though it starts from the top down, and and I don't think that a lot of theaters understand that it's not just about casting. It's it's deeper than that. It's way deeper than that. I think part of what happens with that is there are theater models that work. And in order to sort of to, to break them, I used to have conversations with some students. Um, I remember infamously, I had one student who came in when Gods of Egypt was released. And he was flipping out because, you know, this is about gods of Egypt and all of the people, with the exception of Chadwick Boseman, were all white. I remember that movie. Yeah. And he was losing mm -hmm. his mind. And I said, what you have to realize is we can't necessarily get mad when people who don't know our stories don't tell our stories. And so one of the things that has to happen is. We have to start writing our stuff. We have yeah. to start producing our stuff. And it's weird. As much as I can't stand his material, 
I can't fault Tyler Perry's model. I think his material, P personally, I think his material is junk and it's pablum and he did it to make the buck and, uh, you know, that that is what it is. But the concept of someone who's going to hit all of his designers are black, his costumers are black, his choreographers are black, but the stories that he writes aren't, while, while his earlier theater stuff was all Chitlin Circuit and all for church ladies, as he became more mainstream, he started writing shows that even white people would laugh at. Right. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so to that end, I think we need more writers who will write shows that are not about necessarily our experiences, but that allow us to still tell our stories. If that makes sense without being contradictory. Right, right. Now, one of the one of the really cool things that you've been doing is it's not just obviously about uh, people of color. For 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 you, there's been a lot of different outreach to the community that you plan on doing, especially for this show that we're going to be talking about in a second. Uh, for example, um, during the run of the show, you're going to be doing a Pride Night panel, which is yep. a, a free panel uh, for the LGBTQA uh, plus community to talk about the diversity uh, in the arts. Uh, art, you're partnering with uh, Art Reach Operation in Our Backyard. You know what? What made you choose these programs, and and why do you feel it's important to connect that with your show? Um, so I, I like I for a lot of my life I've been an artist activist. Um, I'm a, a local politician over here in Burlington County. Um, I, so there's there's a lot of me that has a social conscience, and I have a big mouth. So I very much feel the need to like sign on the dotted line and put my money where my mouth is, so to speak. Um, so working with um, Galay and Artreach and Operation in My Backyard, um, I feel like it, it, it's easy for us to, to, again, put representation in some form or another on a stage. Um, but I also want to, to be involved with groups that are actually doing the on-the-ground, roll-up-your-sleeve, trod through the mud work in the community. Um, people who are, are wrestling with drugs and the, the, what drugs cause um, and getting to the point where they can get into rehab and that sort of thing. Um, like that's the group that like operation in my backyard works with. Um, and that to me, when you start to talk about inclusion that also means the people that are cast aside by society. When you start to talk about diversity, that includes um, trans, black trans women um, have the highest per capita death rate in the country. So working with um, groups like LA who deal with black and Latino, um, the whole spectrum, LGBTQA+, um, I wanted to have a connection between the show the company brainchild and these groups that are actually in the community making things happen. And art reach is cool because uh, people that don't normally get access to the arts are able to like some folks will be able to come see our show for like two bucks. Um, if, if they have access cards, um, there are some other people. One of the things that's really cool. I have friends who aren't in Philly um, who are buying tickets for other people who wouldn't ordinarily be able to come. And so we're doing that through Artreach. And so 
Like, if I'm going to talk about diversity, if I'm going to talk about including the community, then I actually want to be able to include the community. That's great. Yeah. And so I, what I want to do, I want to, I, I do want to shift our focus to the show itself because I, okay. I we've, we've been kind of alluding to it, you know, this whole time, but I want to tell people about it because I think this is really interesting. Um, so you wrote a show called The Ongoing Plight of the Ferryman. Uh, this family friendly musical follows uh, Karen, the ferryman, played by uh, Cage Harris, uh, when he is tasked with carrying the souls to the other side, but has become bored with the monotony of his task. Uh, Azrael, played by Sophia Wanninger, uh, the angel of death, wants to maintain the natural order of things. This show is produced by Brainchild Stage Works. This uh, dark musical is loosely based on the legend of the ferryman. Uh, the show is, uh, has a casting crew, uh, we talked about this, highlights uh, all different types of races, genders, uh, uh, neurospectral diversity, all of that features a myriad of musical genres, explosive choreography, and I believe, is, is Dana Orange doing the choreography for, for this? Dana, I have two choreographers. Dana yeah. Orange is doing half, and then Halle Berger is doing the other that's half. A, that's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. Those, those are two incredibly talented people. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, they have a cast from all over the Del uh, Delaware Valley. Uh, this is one of the first truly homegrown and uh, developed new works of theater on this scale in quite some time, and I'm telling you, this show is going to be one of the hottest tickets for the fall season in Philadelphia, the ongoing plight of the ferryman. Uh, I'm going to include in the uh, description of this uh, of this podcast and on YouTube and all of that, I will have uh, a link to get more information about this show uh, and, and so you can get your tickets and all of that. So let, let's talk about it. Uh, what made you write this adventure? What made you decide to go and adopt this story? Um. MTI sucks. <laughs> true, true story. Um, I uh, I was going to do Little Shop of Horrors because I wanted to build the plant. Um, and and uh, MTI gave me provisional rights. So I uh, auditioned a cast, set a production schedule, um, put all those things together. And then uh, when we went to send them the final check, they literally told me that someone... Uh, 12 miles away, a bigger company decided they wanted to do the show, so they pulled it out from under me. So I had a cast. I had it. Uh, I had a cast. I had a crew. I had a production schedule. Um, I didn't have a show. So I wrote one for the cast that I had. That's literally how the show came to be. Now, the concept of the ferryman hating his job, so forth and so on, um, I... Have all sorts of affinities for particularly dark iconography. Um, so the concept of the ferryman and that mythology uh, has always been interesting to me. Um, I've also always thought that the angel of death got a bum rap. So uh, when I put this show together, considering the people that I had working with me, um, and just the concept of you know, death bringing these people to the ferryman and the ferryman having to slog them to whatever their destination is. I just thought it would be really cool if the angel of death um, was portrayed in a way not typically played. So that went into the juxtaposition between these two and the relationship that winds up happening with them, where death is like, look, I'm part of life. I touch everything. Anything that's ever lived, that ever will live, I'm going to come in contact with. And so that's just how it works. And so I do my job. 
you do your job and that's kind of how it goes and so like there there's a fundamental grounding that happens in that but at the same time i think that there's a part of the human spirit that inherently wants more and not necessarily in a greed kind of way but in a understanding their purpose kind of way and i think one of the cool things about the show and the way it develops is that karen comes to understand his purpose not just his job and not just his identity so right that's that's so that's the the theory and the philosophy behind how the show came to be now now i know you said that you you started writing this back in in 2015 um mm-hmm. with that said has any of the events of the past year and a half come into play for you as a director, um, as, a, as a producer, as a writer, when it comes to putting up this show? For example, obviously, we, we were going through the, the pandemic, uh, George Floyd, the election, you name it, we went mm-hmm. through it. I'm, pre- I'm just surprised there hasn't been an alien invasion. <laughs> Dude, point. now you've done it. <laughs> I know. I, I'm manifesting uh. it. I'm manifesting it. <laughs> um, but like, I'm curious, even though you wrote it, you know, five, six years ago, has any of the events of the past year affected the way that you're putting up the show now? Um, only in the, the hardcore physical sense. We were about, we were in rehearsals when the world shut down and we were actually going to do it um, in the middle of the summer last year. Um, so we like we started rehearsals i think in february and then things started you know to slow down and so we're like oh well we'll push it back to may and then people started acting the fool and oh we'll push it back to october um and then people decided not to get masks and all of that sort of thing and philly came out and said well nobody's doing anything until next year um so that in and of itself completely changed where we were going to do it, the scale on which we were going to do it, because at that point in time, um, it was much smaller, and I was going to use it as a stepping stone to other things that we may or may not talk about. But um, So physically, it changed how we wound up producing it. But then as far as structurally and, and artistically, all of the things that were going on and all of the upheaval that was happening was always sort of part of my radar and always something about which I spoke and about which I speak and about which I march and, and have conversations and all those sorts of things. Uh, but I think as far as the show goes, it just made me more determined. And this goes back to what we were talking about before, as far as diversity and representation, um, it just made me more determined to not put up with the bullshit and to not put up with, the lip service. Um, cause again, I, I, I know lots of people who are out doing BLM marches, um, who have kind of returned to their nice sort of suburban existence. I know a lot of people who were talking about intersectionalism, um, between marginalized groups who are out now ready to kind of go back to the status quo. And so, when we got the opportunity to do this, we we were able to secure the theater. Um, I, there was no way that this show was not going to come out of the gate, vocalizing and visualizing and putting forward and being true to all of the talk that was happening back then 
Um, one of the things that actually wound up being kind of disappointing to me, because so many people had to switch gears during the shutdown and because so many people had to switch gears during the protests and all of those things, finding some people of color who financially could afford to a, to, to dedicate themselves to a show was hard. Finding people of color to be department heads, finding people of color to, to even be in the cast um, was inordinately difficult. And a lot of that was be, as, a, as a, a fallout of what was going on last year. Um, so my hope is that as this show comes out and as we kind of say here, it can be done, that it opens up the opportunity for more of that sort of thing to happen and for more people who normally wouldn't for whatever reason to be involved. Now you brought now you brought up the cast here, and and I, I do want to highlight them a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about the people, uh, the artists, uh, I guess both both on stage and off that you're that you're working with now? What is what is it like? You have your you pretty much have your finger on the pulse right now, uh, working with these with these uh, these artists both on and off the stage. What what is what is the what is the rehearsal process been like for you so far? The rehearsal process has been. Interesting. I'm, I'm working with some of the people that I'm working with. Um, there's uh, the youngest member of the cast. Her name is Isabella Lieberman. Um, and it's great because she's biracial. Um, I've been working with her since she was like seven or eight. Like, so I've been working with her forever. There's some people in the cast that I've literally been working with for three months, two months even. So the 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 breadth of experience uh, with the people that I'm working with. There's other people who have done either stage readings with me or done other shows, um, and a lot of people like I'd never met before the first rehearsal. Um, so that is its own kind of interesting and its own sort of dynamic. Um, what's been really cool is the space that we've created. Everyone has the freedom, the space, and the ability to be completely and authentically who they are. Um, so there's all sorts of expressions that will wind up happening just in the talk and the interaction that we have as we're working on scripts. Um, because the music is so different, um, we've got everything from like straight up gospel to techno to um, Lutheran type church, like all sorts of different things. So everybody winds up just kind of being able to exist as they are and to interact as they are. And so there, there will be some times when I'll make a joke um, in rehearsal that only the black people get. And it was only for the black people to get. And so when I throw it out there, they get it. And the rest of the room looks at us like, what? But then there's other times I'll make things that only the old people get. And then there's times that like there's room, there's other jokes that are made that only the gay people get. Um, but at the same time, like everybody's just able to kind of be. And there's never been any sort of sense of us and them based on the way anybody exists. Um, one of the things that's always been very important, even as I was talking about the show being open-ended, is 
I, I look back up a little bit. Um, our casting designer, um, Jay Queen, um, who is a gay man, came to me one day and he said, thank you for writing such a gay show, which I thought was interesting because I never wrote the show as a gay show. But because of the people that are in the show and the representation in the show, um, there's a feel. But there's nothing in the show about anybody being gay or black or white or any of that. It's just people existing. And so there are gay people in the show who exist in their in the space as who they are. And so that authenticity just kind of gets to play itself out. Right. So that's been really a really cool part of the rehearsal process. Everybody really just existing as they are. That's the best. That's the, honestly, that's the best feeling in the world. Just as, as an actor, you know, for, from my standpoint to know that you can walk into a rehearsal process uh, of something that is so intimate of something that is so uh, powerful and know that you can walk in there, you can be comfortable, you can uh, take risks you can you can uh, bond, you know, because that doesn't happen with every theatrical experience that we have. So when when right. we do get a chance to kind of nail it on the head from many different aspects, that's that's when it becomes something special, right? And 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 I I, I hope that people really, as we go on, uh, you know, with with theater and, and theater starts to return this fall. And, and and theaters start to focus on their seasons and their their experiences and stuff like that. I hope that people understand what can truly make a show experience special. And and when something like what you were describing here, when there isn't just like a this us first them mentality, you know, that's that doesn't exist. So there's more of a comfortability level there that makes the, the experience just in general more more fun. <laughs> and and if mm-hmm. anything, it mm-hmm. makes them want to come back for more. So I, I guess my, my my last question to you is this, Rick. Why why should people come see this show? You know, let's just say there's somebody listening right now. They're in the Philly area, South Jersey, uh, Delaware, wherever it may be. They have a chance to come see the show, which, uh, which by the way, it runs uh, it runs all, the entire month of October, pretty much, uh, at right. the Plays and Players Theater in Philadelphia. We'll talk about that at the end. But um, if they want to come see, if they're contemplating coming to see the show, tell them why they should come see this show. You're going to laugh a lot. Um, it's a ridiculously funny show. Um, y- you are going to work. You're going to walk out feeling better about being you. If you come see this show, you will be more empowered to be you. Um, you will walk out humming some of the songs. Um, and one of the things that we want to do, like last year, we got robbed of Halloween. Like there's some people who are like all into spooky season and all about it. And I don't know of a better way to get it back than to come see this show. And it's cool because it's a it's a family-friendly show, but it's kind of like, like Warner Brothers cartoons. Like, it's friendly for the kids, but the grown-ups are going to have a really good time on their own level. Right. Um, there's going to be a little something for them as well to enjoy as they're watching it, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and it's, yeah. So it it's, and I feel a little bit weird because I wrote it, but... Like, it's a really, really good show. People will laugh. People will sing. People will cry. Um, it, it, it's it's moving. I can't. I, I'm, honestly, I, I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. Uh, uh, it it's, it's 
I mean, just from what I've read about it and then obviously talking with you and Kelsey about it, uh, like I'm just I'm really excited to, to, to come see it and experience it myself because, I mean, it just it, that's my kind of vibe. So, like, I'm, I'm, I'm all about I oh. all about that. Um, my friends, uh, the ongoing plight of the ferryman is set to run this October at the Plays and Players Theater in Philadelphia. Tickets are now on sale. Uh, click the link in the description to learn more about Rick and the show and how to get your tickets. I promise you this is a show that you do not want to miss. I'll be seeing it and uh, I'll put up on my Instagram uh, when exactly I'm going to see it that way. Maybe we can get a whole group of people going and uh, we can uh, chat about the show afterwards. To my friend, Rick, thank you so much for chatting with me uh, today, my friend. I'm excited. Thank you for having me. This Friday. You excited? You pumped up? I'm I'm exhausted. Um, and right behind the exhaustion is excitement. Yes, that's fair. That, but that's theater, baby. That's theater. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> I love it. To everybody else, be sure to follow me on your favorite social media platforms at The Vibe with Kai or visit my official website at thevibewithkai.com where I'm always posting things that'll help you do good, feel good, be good, and live a good life full of good vibes. As always, my friends, thank you so much for watching and for listening. God bless and good vibes. I'm not going to